What's going on, everyone? Welcome to Corner Table Talk. I'm your host, Brad Johnson. Here we are exploring subjects related to food plus drink plus culture. As always, with questions or comments about our show, you can reach me at brad at hostandbeamhospitality.com. I invite you to stick around for the segment of our show we call How We Move with my dear friend and sister, Ambassador Shabazz, who will share her insights about the conversation. People born between the years of 1901 and 1927 are often referred to as the greatest generation. They persevered through war, the Great Depression, and in the case of African-Americans, the added struggle in the fight against injustice in the battle for civil rights. Baby boomers, birth years 1946 to 1964, the generation I'm a part of, in large part, are the beneficiaries of the fight for civil rights and social justice. Generally speaking, we could go to decent schools and colleges and pursue our chosen paths, not without headwinds, of course, but certainly an easier path than those that came before us, and we have them to thank for that. My guest today is Raul Roach. He is the son of the iconic and internationally revered jazz musician, Max Roach. We've all listened to and loved Max's music through the years. Max Roach was born in 1924 and part of the aforementioned Greatest Generation. He was firmly entrenched in activism, civil rights, and the social justice movement of the 60s and 70s. And as a result, growing up, Raul was exposed to and mentored by some of the most pivotal Black figures of that period, including Maya Angelou, Sonia Sanchez, Amiri Baraka, and Alvin Ailey. Born and raised in New York City by age 15, Raul was cutting his teeth working for his legendary dad, first as an office assistant, then a roadie, and as his road manager, and ultimately the producer of several of his concerts. As a 40-year upper echelon executive of the music industry, Raul has worked with the biggest names in entertainment, from Quincy Jones, Michael Jackson, and Anita Baker, to name a few. Raul majored in electronic and computer engineering while at UMass Amherst. That's where he and I first met. He participated in organizing rallies and protests for social change while a student there. An interesting note, Max Roach joined the faculty in 1972 as a visiting professor at UMass. We'll talk about the origin of Raul's interest in social activism, discuss some of the activities he was involved with at UMass, his music career, and how music and social activism are woven throughout his life, his successful turnaround of Quincy Jones's Quest Records as the organization's co-executive director. I also want to get into a little bit of the music industry, get his take on streaming and the impact potentially of AI. Raul also helped to launch Harry Belafonte's social justice entertainment enterprise, Sankofa, as the organization's co-executive director. We will dive into Raul's most recent endeavor, coordinating Max Roach 100, an 18-month international centennial celebration of his father's music and life, an effort that will include film, documentaries, social media concerts, exhibitions, new and previously unreleased recordings. So without further ado, my old friend, Raul Roach, welcome to Corner Table Talk. Thank you for having me. My pleasure, brother. Raul, I kick things off here with what I call my short order question. So this one's going to be an easy one for you and an interesting one for me. 
What music is in heavy rotation on your playlist? I'm listening to so much of my father because of the events that I'm engaged in. But for pleasure, I'm listening to Afrobeat. Afrobeats is really the music out of Africa now, the modern music out of Africa, I think is extremely exciting. And I think they have figured out how to mesh six, eight, and four, four. So what Black Americans dance on and what the rest of the Pan-African world dances on, six, eight, has come together. Mm -hmm. So I'm loving Afrobeats right now. Yeah, I'm hip to that too, man. I know you've been talking with Fab a little bit, and we had Fab on the program uh, a little over a year ago now. And he mentioned Afrobeats and a couple of artists that I've since been on Spotify. <laughs> oh yeah, man. It's, yeah. It, 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 these cats are, yeah. It, you can, it comes from the, from the origins, absolutely. So right. it touches you immediately. All right, so tell me, what is the first thing that you drink in the morning? I have a sports drink that I drink in the morning. If I'm not doing that, then I drink a tall glass of water as the first thing before I hit the coffee and try and start my day. Yeah. All right. How about your favorite New York City walk? Cherry Walk uh, on the Hudson River, Riverside Park. Oh, man. That's a good one. It's almost tied with North Woods because I live across the street from Central Park, which uh -huh. is spectacular to all the waterfalls yeah. in the park. Yeah, man. I used to run religiously around the reservoir. I yeah, we saw run. each other there. Yeah, a we of would times. each other. I would try to keep up with you, but I, then I turn around and go the opposite way because yeah, there's only fast. one athlete in this conversation. <laughs> That's you. <laughs> All right. How about the last great thing that you ate? I've become a gourmand on the air fryer, so I'd have to say my favorite is this Dijon maple salmon, which is amazing, oh, and it man. takes minutes. Yeah, freezer to plate. Yeah. <laughs> We like that. The air fryer, man, is moving the microwave out of the picture a little bit. How about, what are you watching these days? You know, uh, I don't watch that much TV. I read a lot. I read a lot of critiques of programs, so I'm pretty up on what's new. I'd say the most impressive thing that I've watched recently was Messiah on Netflix. I'm listening to music most of the time. Last one of these, what are you reading? What's on your nightstand? Believe it or not, I'm reading Dune again because the new movie just really, because I, I grew up on science fiction. I do like science fiction. So I'm reading it again and I'm enjoying it again. Nice, man. Nice. All right. Let's jump in here. How are you and where are you? I see some beautiful art behind you. I'm in my apartment right off Central Park West in the neighborhood that my father had an apartment since I was a year old. He lived at 415 Central Park West on the corner of 101st. I live on the corner of 103rd, mm. right next to the subway station. I know so, that subway station. Yeah, yeah very <laughs> fortunate. I live across the street from the park, so I'm very happy. Love that. I wanted to play a meaningful track of your father's and have you comment on it on the other side. Tell us a little bit about what we're gonna hear and then uh, we'll get uh, a little conversation from you on the other side of it. Max Roach and Clifford Brown, and a big hit they had in their pioneering of the new sound hard bop it's called jordu it's written by the pianist duke jordan Thank you. 
Raul, that's a beautiful track, man. Coming back now, just talk a little bit about that music and what that music meant to you, what stayed with you about that particular track. I think because it's the one I've heard longer than anything else that I can remember growing up because my mother named me after that song. My middle name is Jordu. So I heard the stories from very long ago and it's responsible for me being here because my mother traveled from Providence where she lived and was born and raised to Boston to see Max Roach and Clifford Brown specifically because this was our favorite tune. And then they met and here I am. Here you are. <laughs> My father was a big Max Roach fan, but also a Clifford Brown fan. And he turned me on to Clifford Brown and Strings. And yeah. uh, I never let that go. Great album. Great album. Raul, you and I were talking about your life as a young man. And admittedly, as well as I've known you and for as long as I have known you, there were things that you shared with me that I, that I hadn't heard. You mentioned a very brief affair between your mom and your dad, and you spent the early part of your life with your mom, who was a single parent, and that led to some questionable decision-making. A founding member of a gang, which came as a surprise to me. You had to hide your books on the way home. Share a little bit about this early chapter in your life, and then segue into how that led to you ultimately living with your father. I feel very blessed to have the life that I've had and seeing different sides of it. I had a really diverse background. I started my life out as a, a child of a, a single mom. She had two other children as well under tragic circumstances. It was difficult for her. She took responsibility and never asked my father for anything. He was engaged with his career. He is married. He had a family. We just lived that life. I grew up as the 19 other little boys in my neighborhood grew up being young black boys growing up in a segregated community. Where was that, Raul? That was St. Albans, Queens. Mm -hmm. One of my earliest recollections is when my god sister, because I went in and out of the foster home, but it was like extended family. They loved me as much as their own kids. Some of them say even a little bit more. <laughs> but I was really loved and, and cared for. But I remember my god sister teaching me how to ride a bike and then taking me up to 195th Street, where Cambier Heights started. And that was the white neighborhood. And there were white kids playing on the street and she took me to the corner and she pointed to them and said, don't go down past this 195th street because those kids over there, they'll beat you up. So that was interesting. So of course, all my energy went back towards the other way, which was fine because we had a dead end street and all of us boys would get together and just go crazy on the pavement playing football and all kinds of great games, hot peas and butter, all those great games when you were a kid. But our identities were not white. To survive, you had some parents in the community doing the things with their kids to educate them. Those are the kids we basically picked on. They avoided us. White people read, we didn't read. White people were not rude, we were rude. We were rebels like most abused children become. And when I look back on it, that's what I think it is. When a society abuses its children, they rebel. And sometimes that involves self-harm and a lot of times it involves being anti-you. You're not good because we see how you treat us. I had my foot on the path towards the penitentiary or the cemetery. Mm -hmm. It was the way to survive. This wasn't like I was some tough kid. It was I had to survive. Right. I made friends with the toughest kids and we started a gang called the Black Skulls. We had been attacked by the Black Spades and they beat us up and threw us out of our playground. And so we got back at them. 
and kicked them out and made sure that they didn't come south from Jamaica Avenue after that. But my mother found out. She heard us talking with the spades about weapons and when we were going to meet. She packed my bags that night and moved me to Rhode Island. Wow. <laughs> and I never figured it out until recently. But it saved my life. What age was that? I was 12 turning 13 that summer. And why Rhode Island? That's where she's from originally. That's where all her family is. It didn't change my path. She had a second shift job and she would come home at 11. So I was a latchkey kid. And she come home at 11, I come home like 1140. Right. <laughs> now, <laughs> one night I came home, she told me before she left for work, she said, you better be in this house. When I get home, she screams at me. I still didn't make curfew. Then she sat down on the couch and started crying. And then I started crying. And then she said to me, your father has to take you. I can't teach you how to be a man. Mm -hmm. She called my father the next day and explained to him that I needed a new path. He said, yes. And that changed my life. This happened because as soon as I went to Rhode Island, I found the same case. Same element. Yeah. <laughs> In your relationship with your father, share some of the insight, if you will, because I know that it was partly that fear of my father that helped to turn my behavior around. Here you are, 13-year-old kid. You've been a bit of a troublemaker. Obviously, you're a smart kid underneath all of that. You go to live with your father, this iconic figure. Was that early relationship like? for you with your dad? And when did you realize maybe that behavior wasn't going to fly at his place? I had seen my dad a couple of times when I was young. He came by and visited me and I'd be in the house and he'd come on TV and they'd call upstairs. If I was on TV and I'd come downstairs, as a young man, you want your father. More than anything, you want your father. You, you love your mother, but you really want your father in your life. So when I had the opportunity, I grabbed it with all the gusto. And then what I became didn't and when I first came there was a wall of books about black history and black culture. Everything was Afrocentric. And this was all new to me because I was just a regular neighborhood kid. I had to watch the white shows on TV and never see myself and be happy when, if I saw Diane Carroll or Bill Cosby because they were only black people on TV. But I was immersed in it. It was an amazing thing. But my father had a terrifying temper too. And that certainly did. Uh, cure me. I started out going to visit him. I tested into a good college prep school in Rhode Island and I was there and one of the first students of color. So there was a lot of racial tension during that period, but I just became this militant and I consumed everything that my father believed in, everything that there was to read, Grants Fanon, Paulo Freire, and all these high-end intellectual here I am, a little kid, reading all these books. The first weekend, I moved in with him fully when he accepted the position at the University of Massachusetts, had a new wife. My twin sisters were born, and they were infants. They were 14 years younger than me, which was great. I went out to UMass one night. I was in high school. I was a sophomore, and I stayed out to 2 o'clock in the morning. I came back, and I was like drunk, high, <laughs> 15, and had met a little friend. I came home and I, I went to bed and I got up the next morning and came down to breakfast and my father casually asked me, what time did you get home last night? I lied. Oh, around 12, 15. He jumped across the table and said, don't you ever come in my house that late again. And I was like, what time should I be in there? I didn't know. And he was like, 10 o'clock. And I said, even on weekends? He was like, 11. <laughs> there was no more discussion. That was it. So. It really put me in a mind. And plus Amherst Regional High School was incredible education. You had the five colleges around you. So 
it was like taking a plant that isn't growing in an area and transplanting it to new soil, giving it the right shine and the right water, and I blossomed. So I'm very grateful. The next year he took me to Europe. I was like, oh my God, as a young black man, all I knew was six square blocks. And when I was walking down the street in Italy, I remember seeing all the people shopping in the afternoon for their food. And for the first time it dawned on me, there are 3 billion different people in the world and there are 3 billion different ways of living. Before that, I only knew one way to live. Mm -hmm. For me, it was survival when I was younger. But then my world just opened up. Did you ever get a chance to talk to him about his temper and the, the origin of his anger? No, he'd just get mad. No, <laughs> he was like that because he was a very serious person mm -hmm. and he didn't suffer fools. He worked very hard. He had an incredible work ethic. I admire men like him and Quincy and Harry, who I'm all, have all had a chance to be around, but these people invented themselves. Right. No one knew who Max Roach was as a poor kid standing on the bread line in Bed-Stuy during the Depression. Mm -hmm. and so whatever they did, they made themselves into who they are. Right. They didn't have to check off the boxes. I got my degree in this and I got that. They yeah. just did it. And not a lot to model around them. They were really the originals. I, I think of my father in that way too. How to dress, how to speak, how to be, how to move into business and move around business. And he didn't have a father like I was fortunate enough to have to show me how to do those things, made it up as they went along. Exactly. And he came from, how could you not have a troubled family life during the kinds of oppression that was going on? He moved to Brooklyn when he was four years old. His older brother died of pneumonia when he was, his brother was 11, I guess he was eight or nine, mm -hmm. but it was a hard life. A lot of things happened good for him though. The church mm -hmm. where he learned how to play his instrument, the fact that he moved into an apartment and back then people were moving all the time because of the depression and most of the apartments you went into on the upper floors, which were cheaper, sometimes had pianos because people couldn't afford to move them. That was when you had to take them out the window and drop them down the, you know, people didn't have money to do that. He was in a few apartments that had pianos and his mother sang in the gospel choir, my grandmother, and set him off on a life and he discovered in the drum and bugle corps at church, his instrument. And then he just dedicated to himself to it from the time he was 10 years old. Wow. So going to work for your father exposed you to the music business as a young man. I want to jump ahead to Amherst and UMass. Your dad was one of the first musicians hired to teach at UMass. And as I mentioned at the top, you were involved in activism and organizing while you were at school there. There was a vibrant, active black community, and obviously your awareness of social activism was awakened before then, but discuss your impressions, if you will, of UMass in the seventies and what got your attention as far as the rise of black consciousness on campus at that time and, and what struck you in terms of your activism side? A lot of my life centered around UMass, even as a high school student. And back then you just felt the need to continue the legacy of the people who were opening these doors and how you had to use your new consciousness to continue to move forward, to fight against injustice, fight for your right to be human in a system that tried to dehumanize you. And so for me, being around my dad, especially who was extremely conscious and the people that came by my house for dinner, 
the people who would visit UMass, W.B. Du Bois' widow, Dick Gregory, Acklin Lynch, and Maya, and everybody who came to camp campus during that period would somehow make their way to my house, or I would be making my way to where they were. I would go with my dad to performances or whatever, Ella, everybody. So it just felt like you had an obligation that you weren't going to be like the previous generation because you came up around people and you saw leaders who modeled for you behavior that you didn't have to take it, that you could fight against it, that you could organize against it, and you could make your voices heard. And you had a right, if not a responsibility, to do that. And it was borderline violent, but it was a very serious demand, like Frederick Douglass would say, that you have to have a demand to overcome that kind of oppression. Then the music itself, the culture, the last poets and Gil Scott Heron and all the things that we were exposed to as young students, that was our music. The way we dressed, the natural, the white aesthetic, the Eurocentric aesthetic was out of our consciousness. Right. We did nothing that. Greek. <laughs> nothing. <laughs> There's no European right. Greek right. stuff right. Right. happening. I played basketball at UMass and the uh, black students would all sit in the same section during the games and would not stand for the national anthem. There was no press around that back then. Right. But that was a, a very in-your-face, definitive move made by the, the Black students at the time. What was your read on that? Do you have any idea the origin of where that began? No, I think that you can parse it lots of different ways. Like this is part of the whole rebellion against a system that treats you badly. So if your parents treat you badly, you're not going to show respect. You're going to be angry. You're going to be resentful. And I think we had the consciousness around that, that we weren't going to pay homage and respect to something that didn't respect us. Mm -hmm. You mentioned Gil Scott Heron. He was one of my heroes. I still listen to him almost daily. Talk a little bit about how social activism and music merged in your life. I was merged into that when I came to live with my father. My father didn't do any music unless it had some social significance. He didn't play the game. He was not looking for fame. He was not looking for money. He wanted to produce serious art and help the human condition and all human beings, not just black people, but certainly black people was his point of reference because of who he was and his background because they went through a lot of things as jazz musicians during the era of segregation, especially in the South, but not just in the South, in, in Pennsylvania, in New York, the police, and a lot of bad things happened to a lot of very talented people. So for him, he carried that battle with him. Yeah, interesting, man. You leave New York City in the early 80s for Los Angeles and land a gig as an intern for Quincy at his publishing company. He hired you to be his assistant, and eventually you landed your first job as an executive when you became the national director of Black Music and A&R for Electra Records. You scored your first number one platinum selling hit with an alumni of The Cellar, I might add. Sweats, I want her. Yeah, I remember seeing them there. A Teddy Riley production. And the song ushered in uh, a new sound, of course, we all know now as New Jack Swing. So, Raul, what out for you about that time in your career and music from that period and talk about your impressions of LA and the music industry back in those days. What was happening? It was interesting because after college, I wasn't going to pursue engineering. These weren't my people. Techs weren't hip at that time. So I went to work for a computer corporation for a summer 
And I was like, pocket protectors and broken glasses mended by band-aids. So that was not me. <laughs> I had got a job as an agent and then met Wynton Marcellus. I was booking acts in Europe and, and America, jazz acts. And he offered me a job as his road manager. I went on the road with him for a year when he won his Grammys and put out his first albums. And then I didn't want to do the one-nighters. So I was like, okay. So I moved to California. My brother lived there. He is an actor. I just camped out, got a bunch of jobs until I could make some money. And then I happened to meet someone on the job that was doing an internship with Quincy Jones. Uh, I said, I would love to do that. In the meantime, I'm reading every music business book, doing everything I can to prepare myself to be in a business that I loved. I just wanted to be around music all the time. I met with the person who was hiring people for internships and started working there as much as I possibly could. And then Quincy needed a new assistant and okay. his uh, secretary recommended me because I was around. When she told him what my name was, he said, is he related to Max Roach? She asked me, Quincy wants to know if you're related to Max mm -hmm. Roach. And I was like, yeah, that's my father. And then he says, oh, I heard about your father. Because my father did have reputation as to have a temper. <laughs> but anyway, uh, that's when I got that job. My impression was incredible because I went straight to the top. I mean, sitting next to Quincy and then Quincy was so kind to me because I had this legacy. So he felt comfortable and he would take me everywhere. He would take me into meetings and tell me, don't say anything. But I would sit there and listen. I'll tell you one story from Quincy. The first day I came to work for Quincy, I came to pick him up in the car. He gets in, we're driving for a little while. He had a car phone at that time, making some phone calls. <laughs> then he looks at me and he says, how long do you want to live to? How, how old do you want to get? And he said, don't answer that. But tonight I want you to go home and I want you to figure out how many minutes you have from that moment to the period that you chose that you're going to die. So I, I chose something ridiculous, like 111. Why not? <laughs> I'm still like a science geek, so I'm reading all these magazines. Medical technology, I might make it. I wrote the, the number down, and it was a really small number. <laughs> and I was like, it fits on a really small piece of paper. So I was like, man, I have friends that have more money than I have minutes to live. Mm -hmm. So it was a real lesson for me. When I came back the next day, when he promised we would discuss it, he just looked at it. Because I got it. Time is really the only currency you have. So I've been very fortunate, man. I've been in the company of so many great artists and individuals who, who've done so much. Obviously, a lot has happened in music since your early days. You, you had a huge single with Keith Sweat and New Jack Swing, and then hip-hop, of course, followed. Then we get hit with streaming, and now we're looking at the threat of AI. The music business I felt, and I, I don't think I'm alone here, seemed to have gotten caught flat-footed when streaming hit. But now we all are listening to music on Spotify, unless you're trying to find Joni Mitchell, who took herself off of Spotify. But if you will share a little bit about how streaming impacted music from your point of view, and are you, do you have your eye on artificial intelligence now? Are we going to be looking at a time when songwriters aren't necessary and musicians aren't playing the music that we love. Unless you can put beautiful men and beautiful women AI on stage and have them perform like Beyonce, you know, or Usher, no, I don't think they're gonna be replaced. Recording though, if you can mimic the sound of Beyonce's voice. I wouldn't say they got caught flat-footed. 
As a matter of fact, I was in one of the uh, major internet startups as the vice president of sales for protecting exchange media on the internet. Because the big problem back then was the file exchange phenomenon where people were just recording, ripping off music, and then sharing it for free with the world. The technology came out of Israel. Madonna was a investor. And we tried to sell it in. And the record companies, they knew it was coming, but they refused to let go of their channel because they had control of their channel. We have the artists, we have the contracts, we have the content, we own the content. We're going to have the intellectual property forever to the sound copyrights and all this stuff. No, we don't want to do anything different. And it was a mistake. So you're right. In a way, they tried to hold on to something that was being disintermediate. Nobody wanted to have to go through them anymore to get their music. Nobody wanted to do the retail things. It was the first real disintermediation retail when all the record stores closed. Now you see more of it happening because of Amazon. We were the first in terms of the record industry, and they just were arrogant, and uh, they didn't pay attention. In terms of AI, I think it's a simple solution, but the problem is that we have a generation that was before us that was called the get-over generation. And they were the first ones to fill in, the college graduates from the late 60s, to fill in all of those opportunities that were opened up by the civil rights movement and the civil rights laws and, you know, and affirmative action or all the other things. They're still in power. My kid doesn't know what not having the internet is. I have two sons and they don't have any idea what the world is like without it. So you still have people who don't catch up. I'm glad to see the president and vice president are focused on it. I think what's going to happen is every artist is going to have to be sovereign. So that means that everything that comes out of them, they own. So you can't take Biggie's voice, put it through AI and then own it. No, Biggie is sovereign. So everything that he's created is sovereign. Every sample, every voice inflection, everything belongs to him. I think if we get to that point, we better get to it very quickly. Then we'll be able to have some limits on the creative part of uh, AI. But I think, and like Bab said today, he sees it like I see it. It's just another tool. Hip-hop started in technology because they had bankrupted all of the cultural programs out of the schools. People were, after the 60s, people were disenchanted with the church. They weren't going to learn instruments there. You have these kids in these burnt-out neighborhoods in the South Bronx and in Queensbridge living in projects, and human beings have to create. So they create. They put together the music that they could get at record stores, and then they connected the 8-track and the record player. You could go back and forth before they connected the turntables. It was a way to keep the party going, and then these parties competed. So you had to get a master of ceremonies who would come in and say what we used to say in, in college. The rough is hype up the crowd. And then that turned into more limericks. And then they put it on tape and it became the hip hop music industry. I think that people will find a way to create. And I agree with Fab and the fact that it's just another tool. But we have to protect our rights as creators in, in that new environment because using Human creativity and then remixing it is not originality. That's theft. Now, they say all art is theft. We just need to get ahead of it, but we need 
people in government and in business to understand. I hear you. And I worry that my son's a musician. We talk about this a little bit and he's dead. They're going to be writing songs soon with AI. They're going to say, give me a love song that sounds like Teddy Pendergrass and whomever else. And AI can churn that out along the lines of what you're saying. If it's Biggie and you can identify that as proprietary and it's Biggie, that's one thing. But if it's a song like someone's, how do you contain that? Half artists have to be sovereign right, in the right. fact that they own all access of their, their creations. And there should be limits on the technology that identify the provenance. So if you're putting in this prompt into AI and you're using Biggie's name, that's Biggie's shit. If you're using Teddy Pettigrass's name, that's Teddy's shit. And so you can't separate the two. That's my opinion. That's the two areas which I think we can corral the technology, at least on the creative side, but it's going to change everything then. It's going to improve our economy globally. Amazing. When the internet came on in the 90s, and I was part of that too, absolutely, record industry and all of these businesses were starting up, we were getting 35% year over year efficiency growth during the 90s. That's why the 90s economies was just, the Clinton years were just bang. Al Gore had decided that they weren't going to sell the internet space to the telecommunications companies, but keep it public. And it really was a good decision. I think AI is going to do that and eclipse efficiency. I'm using it to write emails, letters. I've written scripts for commercials using it. Ask them to do decks for me. They don't do the actual deck, but they'll do the deck language. And you have a few minutes of editing and you're done. So I'm 10 times more efficient using it. So I think it's an important tool. We have to make sure that we have people who understand the technology and then be able to put guardrails on it. I was listening to Neil deGrasse Tyson, the astrophysicist, and he basically said what you just said. So that that shows you how smart you are, but he said it's going to be a a valuable tool. So we've got a a little bit of time left. I did want to touch on Quest Records and how you helped to turn them around. Your view in the music world, Raul, is a really interesting one. Obviously, you go way back because of your dad through a very interesting period, one of the best, I think, musically, the 70s, giving way to the 80s. And the drum machine and all of that. I remember going to clubs like Leviticus when hip hop and rap were just starting and DJs were rapping over records and scratching and starting them again. I'd get mad. I'd be like, man, play the damn records. But we saw the evolution. We were both in LA when the West Coast hip hop era really sprung up. We were right there for that. And a catbird seat hanging with Quincy. But just give me your overview as to where we've come from in terms of the music industry and where we are now. Are you pleased with where music is these days. But start with Quest. Talk a little bit about that experience. That was an amazing experience. First, because I'd had success at Electra Records, like you said, with Anita Baker and so many others. Shine had the first dancehall record and a bunch of stuff. Teddy and the New Jack Swing movement. For me, coming up with my dad and the music that we experienced in the 70s, Brad, it was about individualism. In the 90s, we began to move into a producer's realm where you'd have one producer and they produce their sound over a range of artists. That, to me, isn't interesting. I love the era when you heard the OJs, you heard Earth, Wind & Fire, you heard Al Green, you heard The Temptations, you heard whomever, and you could tell the difference. You knew who was who. Now it's more like originality has not yet gathered back its ability to say, 
what we prize more than anything is individuality, not being the second anybody, but being the first of yourself. And so I think that we're moving through cycles and I think it's coming back. I see a great new young jazz coming up on the loft scene here in New York City and in Brooklyn and downtown Manhattan. These young uh, kids, they have that repertoire that goes all the way back to Scott Joplin, to electronica and the trap rap. And they play it all, everything. They'll play Giant Steps, John Coltrane, and then segue right. into big guys on the West Coast, like Kamasi Washington, same thing. Oh, Kamasi's the man. So I think I'm a big believer in positive. And, and certainly I feel that when you start talking about, oh man, that music, that sounds like you're getting old. <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm interested in the new. That's what turns me on. I love music and I love listening to, to music, but I want to hear what's next. I'm, I'm with you too, man. There's a station that I listen to still. I stream from LA, even though we're in Miami, KCRW. And actually, Novena Carmel is Sly Stone's daughter. And she's Wonderful. got a program called Morning Becomes Eclectic. I surprised my son with some of the stuff that I put on my playlist. I'm like, yeah, your pops is listening. Do you, I do yeah. the same with mine. He works at Columbia Records. I come up and he says, how'd you know that? <laughs> That's how I roll. So leaping ahead here, we just lost Harry Belafonte. And I know you had a very special relationship with him. In fact, you were instrumental in helping to launch Sankofa, Mr. Belafonte's social justice entertainment enterprise as its co-executive director. That's a big calling, Raul, to work with someone like that on a cause like that. It's certainly right up your alley. One of the most visible humanitarians and social activists of our time. Talk a little bit about your relationship there and what that program meant to you. It was tough dealing with his death, first of all. And I never thought that I would react in this way. I finally realized I've had a really good life because I've experienced such a diverse life. And I had never really experienced overwhelming grief. I would allow myself because I grew up with that greatest generation of men and they brought some toxic masculinity, a lot of toxic masculinity with them. But all the voices, I couldn't stop myself from crying. I finally had to call my psychiatrist and he told me to take a certain medication to calm me down. But I, got, I didn't cry like that for my dad, for my mom, for my grandparents, for my godparents. What was this about? He said, we caught you in an unguarded moment. And all of the grief that you've been holding back came through in that moment. And so your body just released. It was tough. But I think with Harry, man, I just, I don't know how to describe it because I work with him every day. And Gina and I were close. And so I spent a lot of time with the family and with him. And not just working, but also social time, traveling and doing other things. It was a pleasure. What I learned with him was when you work for Harry, you, you don't really say no to him. I tried a lot. They wound up always wrong. <laughs> when he asked, we were just at dinner at a Chinese restaurant, purely social occasions. I had no aspirations to go to work for him, but he just laid it out for me what I should do and how I can be of service. And this was his idea. He had so many creative ideas, it was difficult to keep up. Just an amazing person, an amazing man. He gave me the opportunity to really be about my coda. This was, Sankofa.org was really my coda. It was my ability to bring what I had learned through my life to bear, to start an organization that was a social impact 
uh, organization as well as an entertainment organization, which is where my background was from, bringing artists together, making music, making films, making documentaries, making PSAs, all in the service of movement and grassroots organizations. That was the expression of my whole life. The people on the ground at Ferguson, we were there a week after Mike Brown was murdered. And we sent artists there and uh, were there with these brave young people, man, uh, who protested every day for 260 plus days. Rain, shine, snow, sleep, didn't matter. Across from a police station in communities that had just turned them into basically fine sharecroppers in terms of they would catch them and give them all these fines. Then they would draw money from them to support the police department, the fire, and the, and the administration of these small towns because they had been moved out of downtown St. Louis to the northern suburbs. It turned into this incredibly impressive atmosphere. Driving across country, I knew about the Missouri State Police. They had a rep when it came to black people, but the police in, in St. Louis and, and in the northern suburbs of St. Louis, the black communities, they're Gestapo's. They murder people. They beat people. They're like overseers, really. And then you see these young people, all of these black people lined up at these houses that they turn into makeshift courthouses to see how much they're going to pay every week to catch up on their fines. One community had $140 million in fines that was owed to them. And they had to erase it after the Department of Justice came in and said, are you serious? You have $140 million worth of fines that still owed to you? People lining up to go into your basement to give you $20 or $40 a week? It was insane. Anyway, it was great for me to be engaged in movement, especially with Mr. Belafonte. It was just so much history, so much brilliance, so much beauty, so much joy. He's, he's such a special person to so many people. I know the Shabazzes know that very well. And so I've lived a fortunate life, man. I really have. I would say, man, if you had to distill Mr. Belafonte's personal power down to just a brief description, what, what was it about him? Obviously, he was tremendously charismatic, very bright, a beautiful man. But what was your takeaway from all of that? What was his personal power, Raul, would you say? He told me it was his personal power came from his mother that would put him to bed at night and say, never go to bed at night unless you do something for someone else. And he lived that his whole life. Mm. Every day it was about how can I do something for someone? Mm. How can I make the world a better place? To have that kind of commitment over uh, a 96 year term from childhood is just the essence of who he was. And the history I learned talking to him about his sojourns in Africa. He was an actor too, so I know there's a little embellishment. <laughs> to know the esteem that Nelson Mandela had for him and all of the other people that he interacted with. And there's so many things that people don't know. Going to Chase Manhattan, calling David Rockefeller, and having David Rockefeller open the bank on a Sunday, Chase Manhattan, meeting the president of the bank. They go in there so he get $50,000 from David to get to bail out all of the people who had been arrested in Atlanta, including Dr. King. You'd hear these stories about how Tupac's mom was arrested in jail, pregnant with Tupac when she was protesting, and Harry paid that bail. She never forgot it. And the thing about working for Harry, like working with my father on this, this centennial, is nobody says no. 
my experience is you throw a bunch of balls up against the wall and see which one sticks. Everyone is sticking. Everyone's saying no. And it's an amazing testament to their life and the kind of respect that they've built. Quincy Jones, Harry Belafonte, and Max Roach. Wow. Three pivotal human beings, man. That, that's a lot in one lifetime. Poor little black boy used to beat up kids. Little troublemaker. Yeah. <laughs> you got it together, brother. Oh. <laughs> well, the, the set of that is, if I can say just one thing, is I loved my friends when I was young and I lost almost all to drugs or to murder or to prison. And that also pegs me to wanting to make sure I try and do something about the conditions that created those children. Sure. Yeah, sure. You probably remember the name Bill Underwood from your music. Love Bill. Man. Life. Love Bill. Great guy. He just got out of federal prison after 34 years. He was sentenced to life with no parole and a music business executive also managed slaves. Steve Arrington discovered Johnny Gill. Anyway, Bill and I got together recently and we were talking about his old neighborhood in Harlem on Manhattan between 112th and 114th Street. I think he said out of 30 or so young men about the same age, maybe two or three are alive and out of prison. Incredible odds, man, against young black men born at a certain time in a certain community. That problem has not resolved itself. I don't know if there's something you want to touch on there before I move on. I do want to talk about what you're doing with your dad, but give you an opportunity if you wanted to make any kind of a comment about that. Yeah, it's a strange conundrum because, and I do really look at it as a microcosm of a family. And there are families that the leaders of those families abuse their children emotionally, physically, even sexually. And so to see how that's created this kind of dysfunction, even self-destructive dysfunction, is tough. So how could you not want to organize and fight against that when the people that you've loved since you were five are lost in a system not of their devising? And sure, they could join the system. Sure, they could do all of quote unquote, check all the boxes. I get into uh, arguments sometimes about the use of the word nigger. And I'm like, I get what you're saying. And certainly you would like to abolish the use of the word, especially when we refer to ourselves as that. But the truth is, it's rebellion. Yeah, I'm a nigger because I don't want to be like you. I don't want to be white. I don't want to oppress people. I don't want to do that. Even though you have this kind of proletarian thing where you do have on the spectrum people who are poor and evil. So they do bad things. But I'm just saying the systems need to change. Racism needs to be abolished. Yeah, absolutely. The, the struggle is ongoing. So I wanted to wrap up on what you are currently working on your latest project. Max Roach 100 is an 18-month international centennial celebration of your father's music and his life. So tell us about that, Raul. That's a big undertaking, man, but one that's close to your heart. Yeah, it really is. It's a love project. I'm fortunate enough to be retired and have the time to devote to it. My siblings are participating in ways that they can. But because I have the experience, I started in 2019 to call the people that my dad's worked with and say, hey, my father's centennial is coming up in 2024. You think about doing something? They're like, yes. I started with David Rodriguez over at New Jersey Performing Arts Center, and then I called Winton. They both said yes. And from there, I've been able to build the Kennedy Center to North Carolina Jazz Festival, to the kitchen, and all of the things that he did in his career 
because he had basically four audiences. He had the bebop audience with Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie and Miles and those guys. Then he had the hard bop era with him and Clifford Brown and Miles with the cool jazz thing, which he was also a part of on that recording. And then that transfer into this Afrocentric nationalist, cultural nationalist movement in the late 50s, watching him and Abby expose as celebrities the natural because everybody was pressing their hair. They were moving away from that Eurocentric aesthetic. Then you have this avant-garde audience where he worked with percussion ensembles, a Chinese a trio with ancient instruments, with Kodo drummers from Japan. And he would do all of these experimental things with Cecil Taylor and all these really out free jazz musicians. He was always pushing the boundary to do something new. Even hip-hop he embraced early was heavily criticized for in 1982 because he felt like the same, Quincy said the same thing, Harry too. The energy of that movement was the same energy they experienced when they were creating the sounds for their generation. I'll say one more thing on that. My father said that when you look at the cultural traditions of people, the European cultural tradition is a generation makes a mask they put it up on the wall, put a glass box around it, and they point to it and say, that's the greatest mass that's ever been made. The African tradition is every generation makes their own mass. And so what we see with this constant creativity, this constant improvisation is a very human African homo sapien tradition of not taking something and classicizing it to the point that nothing can be created beyond it. And the generations after just have to kneel <laughs> generations before it's about creating it's about moving the culture forward and the world of sound which my yeah. dad liked to say includes music but is not exclusive to it i feel that man so on that note in closing you're the dad you're the father of two boys two young black men what do you tell your kids how do you feed their optimism and what are you cautious or concerned about as you raise these two young black? The cycle of history. I was born in a sweet spot. I didn't have to go to Vietnam and I didn't have to go to the Gulf War. I fear what all parents fear, that they're going to be caught in a maelstrom, not of their design, but of forces that are beyond their control. So that's what I fear. The optimism that I feed them is that I love them and I want them to love themselves and as many people as they can in their life. Through that, they'll find their way. That's what's most important to me. A lot of the lessons that I learned from these great individuals that I've been exposed, and I try and pass down the little tidbits that I can and just empower them to let them know that, and people argue with me, but I believe I owe them everything because they didn't ask to come. I brought them. So I'm giving them everything I can and then setting them free to set their course, and it's their choice. You know, they're men. Their adults, they make their own choices. If I can make one more thing about this whole toxic masculinity thing, when I was going through this uncontrollable grief around Harry's passing, which was really the compounded grief, I kept hearing these voices in my head, Brad, it was crazy. Remembering from when I was a kid, boys don't cry. Be in control. You can't show weakness. Be strong. I just kept hearing these voices and I couldn't stop crying. 
And then I realized that was passed on. Our male elders pass on to us this masculine culture that was not about feeling or being emotional. That's why I was in that moment because I'd finally been caught off guard. I wasn't prepared. I loved Harry and I really believe he was fond of me. I didn't expect that reaction. It was crazy. They also passed on to you the emotional trauma. Yeah. We also inherited that. Yeah. So you got the combination of the two. You're right. But I know one thing, I passed it on to my sons. And that's my next move is to try and tell them that it's okay to feel. Because when they cried, I did the same thing to them. And I feel immense guilt about it. But I'm going to do my best to end cycle on that and talk to them about it's okay to feel. It's okay to express these emotions to your body. That's the way human beings are built. You don't have to hold it in. Raul Roach, you're always a real pleasure to talk to, man. And I know you're working on some writing. I hope that you complete this memoir of yours because, you know, just so many thoughts and experiences in your life, I think, can add value and insight to all of our lives. It's a pleasure to know you, pleasure to call you my friend. Thank you, man. I really appreciate it. And I got to tell you, I'm just going to give it to my sons because I just want them to, the benefit of my knowledge of what I've learned from the mistakes and the, and the successes that I have had and for them to have, because I'm naming names, Brad. <laughs> so I told them they, they can't release until after the young, youngest person 15 years after they die. So it's never going to come out because I'm naming names. You'll never have lunch <laughs> in this town again, right? <laughs> Raul Roach, thank you, my brother. It's All great right. to see you, man. Take care, man. Love you, man. Peace. Love you back. Thanks to Linda, yeah. everybody, and to the ambassador. Peace. Welcome back, everybody. I am here with my sister, Ambassador Shabazz, who's looking just younger every day. I don't know how you do it. What did you think about our conversation? He's had some interesting people in his life and some really incredible experiences. It was a powerful conversation to listen to. What comes to mind is what is it that makes us who we are? In the tally, he said towards the end that he's lived a blessed life. And this is notwithstanding any of the aspects of his early beginnings in the twists and turns. But instead, if you're lucky enough, blessed enough, to live long enough and have a perspective like his, you realize that every twist and turn has some value. I have to say, I've known the Roaches, the Roach family off and on throughout the 60s, 70s, 80s, depending on where they were, what was happening, which parent, which event. Us as kids, we would pass through each other as folks were being, those days you babysat with them there. You, know, you weren't left sometimes. Like he said, he was following his dad. He was with his dad. His dad took him places after he was living with him. So we crisscross, but I really got to know him a little bit in Los Angeles when he started to work with Quincy Jones, because then I became a president of one of the Quincy Jones companies. The real exchange or with he and I getting to know each other independent of all things was when he was working with Sankofa. He and Gina Belafonte founded or ran on behalf of Harry Belafonte, in listening to your conversation, I would never have imagined any of the, the bumps because my experience with Raul Roach is always a calming one. He's a resonating, loving, welcoming, calming presence, at least in my exchange. I've watched him tend to plenty, many, Mr. Belafonte specifically, in public spaces. 
he's just really attentive to the mm-hmm. so listening to what he had to journey through to get to that place hats off to him strong quiet strength he has a quiet strength even though it has the force of his father's teaching the conviction rather of his father's tutelage but it's a quiet ever present strength yeah even going back to uh, our days at UMass, Raul had that kind of cerebral presence. Yeah. You knew he was a thoughtful guy. I always knew he was a smart guy. I wanted to touch on for a moment, our fathers were both born in 1925. Max Roach was born in 1924. That generation is often known as the greatest generation. What was it that generation persevered through? What gave them that fortitude? And why do we look back at that generation perhaps as the the greatest generation? I think we get to look back. We need to reintroduce it to today's population 50 years and younger because they think they're the OG. I keep hearing that all the time. And you want to say, no, the real architects of social development, at least in a modern day, in, in the last 100 years, includes these people that may or may not have gotten a degree, yet we are the beneficiaries of their contributions in so many ways, men and women. When you talk about musicians with a mission, it includes Tito Puente or Celia Cruz. Do people that are Latino know who they are? Or Babatunde, Nina Simone, you hear her name, but do you know the journey? Pete Seeger, Harry Belafonte, and not to mention subject-wise, Max Roach. Many of them, if we were to do the narrative, the biography, the background, and understand what they bequeathed, whether you're a direct beneficiary, like one's own child, or you are the collective beneficiaries, like we are, of one another's shared lineage, we have to know what it is. Otherwise, we're starting from scratch all the time. Let me just say this without mentioning names. There was a noted producer that we laud was working with a newer generation collectively and in union with some of those from a different era, they remarked to me that the newer musicians wanted to know what was that black stuff on the paper. And it was notes, just notes, theory, understanding why musicians could gather and do a jam session cold. Because in addition to the instinctive capacity to improvise, they still had the notes to work from. So there's some fundamentals. We have great talent, sure, right? We have great talent amongst us, notwithstanding, I think is inherent talent, inherent talent, but not the fundamentals. So there was preparation that went into those sessions and they didn't just walk and sit down and start playing. They, they had assignments going in. Those are the structures we need anyway. It doesn't mean that I think identifying what a metronome is. What's the rhythm that we're going to work with, notwithstanding mm-hmm. your nuance or your uniqueness that comes to the table? But if we are working together, what's the note? What's the grid? What are the chords that we're going to have, such as in any house or any business? Coming up is the Max Roach PBS documentary, which I am very much looking forward to. Raul is uh, very involved in getting his father's uh, music and story back out there. My father loved Max Roach as a drummer. We used to watch him on Sunday nights when he was playing on CBS. It would be one of the cool down uh, moments my father and I get to share after dinner. So I don't want to miss it. 
because once I get to see it as is confirmed by the Roach family, I want to refer it. Beautiful. Ambassador Shabazz, looking forward to some more of our conversations. Some will be friends, some will be people we'll be meeting for the first time, but looking forward to what we have coming up on Corner Table Talk and how we move with Ambassador Shabazz. 